Hi, Golf Podcast listeners. This is Jen. Thanks for joining me for today's episode, The Edge of the Sea. If you can imagine the Texas coastline, it curves around the northwestern Gulf of Mexico. The coast is made up of a series of bays and estuaries fed by about a dozen major rivers. Estuaries are simply defined as partially enclosed areas where freshwater meets saltwater. The freshwater that flows into them is called, well, freshwater inflow. And that's today's topic. It seems kind of mundane, right? But sometimes the most ordinary topics can be the most significant. The edge of the sea is a strange and beautiful place, Rachel Carson reminds us. In Texas, everything from oysters and shrimp to redfish and people rely on estuaries and freshwater inflow. In short, saltwater needs freshwater. That's absolutely fascinating to me, and something that doesn't readily come to mind when you think about the Texas coast. People go to the coast not to look at the phytoplankton, they go to the coast to, to go fishing for redfish or, or, or flounder or, or black drum, right? And the hardest sell over the years is to convince the people who only care about redfish that if you really want to build more redfish, it's the field of dreams. You've got to build a healthy bay and estuary, and if you build it, they will come. And if the bay and estuary is not healthy, they're going to disappear. Everyone understands a you know, two-foot-long redfish <laughs> and holding it up in front of a camera. But how do you take a picture of just some bay water and come to the conclusion, that's great redfish habitat. <laughs> you know, it's harder. That's Dr. Paul Montagna. He's a likable and funny down-to-earth guy. You know, someone who you might see out mowing their lawn on the weekend. And you wouldn't know it, but he's also a leading researcher of coastal ecosystems. Most people don't have a 46-page long resume, but Paul does. He's currently semi-retired and still working at the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. On today's episode, we'll hear more from Paul Montagna, who has devoted much of his career to studying estuaries and freshwater inflow. Then I want to go back in history to the dramatic changes in Texas after World War II and how this transformed the state's coast and the water that flows into it. Finally, we'll hear more about how Paul and others rewrote state law to make Texas a national leader in maintaining freshwater inflow. As it turns out, the uniqueness of the Texas coast really helped Paul's research. We have all these asteroids aligned perpendicular to the coast, and they line this gradient, and they're all dramatically different in terms of inflow and climate. It's like nature created a perfect experiment for us so that we can pair inflow effects just based on the inflow patterns alone, because both the tidal variables and the um, geological variables have been held constant. So the entire Texas coast is what we call microtidal. The tidal range is very small. And the entire Texas coast is very flat and it's based with, you know, we have what we call bar-built estuaries. There are the barrier islands in the front, a bay in the back, and it's a very flat area fed by some river systems. For a scientist who studies uh, inflow effects in estuaries, it's been the perfect place to set up these kinds of long-term studies. In the 35 years that Paul Montagna has been studying the Texas coast, he's been able to document the importance of estuaries and freshwater inflow for people. Well, it's interesting. Estuaries and the coastal zone make up only 5% of the world's oceans, 
but it's 95% of the world's productivity, uh, marine productivity. So they're clearly very important just for providing food for people. But the other thing that's really important and people don't realize is they provide an incredible buffer for storms that provide a natural protection during hurricanes and, and other big storms. And so when estuaries get degraded, you lose two of those important, what we call ecosystem services, benefits to people. They no longer buffer the coast, and so we see storm effects get greater and greater as we degrade estuary systems. And of course, we have less food production, whether that's oysters, fish, or crab, or shrimp, or other things that have what we call estuarine-dependent lifestyles and are really important to people. And then the third thing that I think is super important is estuaries are natural filters. They have this ability to kind of naturally clean the environment. So when we have a natural estuary and estuaries in a healthy state, it literally will remove all the pollution for us, completely free of charge. <laughs> and, and yet the opposite is true. Once they get degraded, they can be overloaded. You know, just like your vacuum cleaner gets overloaded and it no longer sucks the dirt out of your rug. If an estuary gets overloaded, it has this what we call assimilative capacity. And once that gets filled, the pollutants just start to build up, build up, build up. And then all kinds of nasty things happen. The water turns ugly colors. It might get a little smelly. We might actually get toxic events like red tides occur. And so that's why a healthy estuary is so important to people. Before I tell you about how Texas safeguarded estuaries... I want to go back in time a bit. World War II transformed Texas. The U.S. home front manufactured most of the materials needed to win the war against fascism. In Texas, They built new military bases, airfields, aircraft factories, shipyards, and of course produced the oil to fuel it all. After the war, Texas continued to grow. Factories and industries popped up around the state. The coast was becoming rapidly developed, and more and more people moved into cities. All of these industries and people needed water. Then a drought hit. The drought of the 1950s wasn't just a year or two. It dried up Texas for most of the decade. It was the worst drought in the state's history. Interestingly enough, Paul Montagna would later work with someone who lived through the drought in West Texas. I'm talking about Dr. Larry McKinney, also semi-retired and the former director of the Heart Research Institute. There was no water. I mean, in our area, I don't think I saw moving water until I was in the first grade or something like that. Because it had not rained, the sandstorms were so intense growing up at the end of the day at school when we had to go to our buses and the buses would be parked a few hundred feet away from the school, you know, in a big lot. There were times when the sandstorms were so intense and so the the visibility was so limited that we would have to assemble in the classrooms and all of us would hold hands and a teacher would take us to the bus because they were concerned we could get lost and not find the bus and and be lost in the sandstorm. That was how tough it was. Larry grew up on a West Texas cotton farm during the drought. When the rain stopped, his family was forced to sell all the cattle because the range had dried up. Then his grandfather had to sell some of the land. For farmers and ranchers, that's as bad as it gets, he said. His father had to work three jobs to get out of debt. So it was really, really difficult. Uh, And it was difficult on a lot of people. I didn't understand this, but I just, you know, for the first... When I was until three or four, 
I never really had a toy that was bought. My father made all of our toys for Christmas and everything, but we just didn't have money. And it took him 15 years to recover from the drought of the 50s to the point where he had paid back all his debts and really reestablished himself. So it was difficult. It really completely changed the landscape of farming from small farms like ours. I mean, many of them went out of business. The farms got incrementally larger because that's all they could business. So that started this whole shift in agriculture in the state of Texas from the small farming and people moved into cities because you can't make a living on the farm. So there's a big sociological change going on. The drought hit coastal communities hard, too. Freshwater inflow brings nutrients, sediments, and freshwater into estuaries. That's why they're so productive for marine life. In the 50s, the lack of freshwater inflow caused fish kills and declines in crabs, shrimp, and oysters. And when the fish and shellfish decreased, this in turn hurt tourism and coastal economies. The drought also spurred big changes in how the state of Texas thought about water. They passed the Water Planning Act, created a series of water plans, and then embarked on a dam building spree. Many reservoirs were constructed. For a state that only had a couple natural lakes to begin with, this created an entirely new landscape. It finally became to a point where we were diverting so much water from these estuaries because the Texas population was growing like crazy. Uh, it, it was decided we needed to do something to determine how much fresh water each one of these estuaries needed to keep themselves healthy to produce commercial, you know, shrimp, crabs, and fish, and all that. So uh, I was charged with putting a program together to figure that out. At his former position at Texas Parks and Wildlife, Larry McKinney put together a diverse team of scientists and attorneys. So we spent almost 10 years developing recommended freshwater inflows for every Texas Bay. Uh, and that was used to go into regulations and, and legislation to help set aside some of that water to try to make sure that we didn't destroy the entire Texas coast by taking the freshwater away from it. That was really what we were aiming at. See, a lot of my career just keeps going back to the drought of the 50s. Since that drought, Texas has constantly adapted its water plans. Eventually, those plans included freshwater inflow. It all kind of came together at the right time. In the mid-80s, Texas was in the middle of an oil bust. Oil has always been boom and bust. This time, it followed one of the most prosperous periods in Texas. It might be cliche, but I envision the 70s boom period as oil men in polyester suits and big 10-gallon hats. But by the time stagflation caught up with the oil industry, the bottom fell out. So when the state legislature met in the mid-80s, they struggled with budget problems. They desperately needed to diversify the economy. When the governor addressed the legislature, he said, Water is the oil and gas of our future. He wanted to ensure the health of bays and estuaries for the seafood industry, as well as for coastal tourism and sport fishing. This took place just as Dr. Paul Montagna began studying Texas estuaries and freshwater inflow. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. You know, I moved here in 1986, and in 1985, the legislature passed a rule that required that any new water permits would have to consider the effects on downstream bays and estuaries. And of course, this 
also follows on, you know, a very devastating drought in the 1950s, where people first started noticing big changes in coastal resources when the salinities went sky high. Texans have always been very concerned about protecting bay health and understanding that rivers flowing to the coast were largely responsible for bay health along the Texas coast. So we have this long history going back from the 50s to certainly 1985, where the state has enacted laws that protect flows to the coast, to protect the bays and estuaries. What's interesting is there are really only two other states in the whole country that have laws like that. Florida passed laws like this in the 1990s. California didn't pass a law like this till 2010. So Texas has actually been one of the national leaders when it comes to this issue of environmental flows and protecting downstream receiving bodies of of those freshwater flows. In terms of water, this was pretty unique because it focused on water quantity, not quality. Fast forward a couple decades later, and the state improved the law to protect the ecosystem. Since Paul had worked on the issue for decades, Governor Rick Perry appointed him to a committee to study environmental flows. That led to the passage of Senate Bill 3 in 2007. And a big part of the problem was the way the 85 law was conceived. It was really conceived to protect harvestable resources like red drum and black drum and oysters and shrimp and blue crab. And the problem is, is flow doesn't affect natural resources directly. It only affects natural resources indirectly. And, and that's what took us about 20 years to figure out. What river flow to the asteroid really does is it changes the water quality of the bays, It changes, it brings in sediment that can build habitats, and it also dilutes the salinity in the bays. And it's the combination of these three things that create what I like to call estuary condition. And the biological resources then respond to those conditions. When Senate Bill 3 was passed in 2007, it changed our management goal. It changed the goal from trying to manage the bays to produce just seven species to trying to maintain the ecological soundness. And so what ecological soundness was basically moved us toward an ecosystem-based management approach. So now what we do is we kind of, we try and manage our coastal systems to protect the entire ecosystem and not worry about winners and losers in terms of individual particular species. I was pretty, pretty fortunate to be able to have a impact so that science had an impact on crafting what I think is a pretty good law. Rethinking freshwater inflow and Texas water law hasn't always been perfect. But one thing that Senate Bill 3 created was an adaptive management process and more stakeholder involvement. That's pretty important for a growing coast. We, we have to always balance the need for water for people and water for the environment. And, and I'm an eternal optimist. I still believe that even in, stre- in, even in areas that are water stressed like it is in South Texas, we can figure out ways to take care of both. This is Dr. Jen Brown, and you've been listening to The Gulf Podcast. The Gulf Podcast is made possible by the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. For over 20 years, the Heart Research Institute has sought science-driven solutions for Gulf of Mexico problems in order to advance long-term sustainable use and conservation. Thanks to my production assistant, Max McClure. Music and sound from this episode came from Pierce Murphy, Dr. Turtle, and Inspector J. You can find episode scripts, as well as oral history recordings and transcripts, on our website. 
I'm going to leave you today with a passage from Rachel Carson's 1955 book, The Edge of the Sea. On all these shores there are echoes of past and future, of the flow of time, obliterating yet containing all that has gone before, of the sea's eternal rhythms, the tides, the beat of the surf, the pressing rivers of the currents, shaping, changing, dominating, of the stream of life, flowing as inexorably as any ocean current, from past to unknown future. <laughs>